Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another live episode of The Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Dr. Scott Powell. And I'm Father Peter Musset, and I am in Springfield, Illinois. You didn't match my level of excitement there. Dude, I thought I matched it precisely. You didn't sound Hi, terribly... I'm Father Peter. You didn't sound very excited. I'm just saying. Really? No. Oh, I felt intense in my head. Y- yeah, no, you sounded like super like, Hi, welcome to the Lanky Guys. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? Oh yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Dude. Is that how I sound to you? It did. Now you sound excited. Whatever. It's weird because we're distance and the headphones, and I can't hear myself in the mic, <laughs> so I don't know what I sound like. So basically, what you're saying is you can't hear yourself think. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I'm a I'm an external thinker. I'm an external processor. So you could take off one of the headphones, and then you'll hear yourself better. I'll take off your headphone. Oh, oh, oh. That's nice. Yeah, dude. See how it works. Now you yeah so now you're just hearing me in one ear, yay! That's how I usually feel. <laughs> it, it, yeah, no, that's it, not in true. in one ear out the other is kind of uh, what you're saying. Uh, no, no, I just always have your little voice on my shoulder Did, telling me what to do. <laughs> that's what a Don't that's that. what, that's what a real boss should be like. You should. I think that you, there should just be a little <laughs> omnipresent. Yeah, just like whispering in your ear all the things that you should and shouldn't do. Yeah. Yeah, so you were about to tell us you were in Springfield. Um, I actually I had already told you that I was in Springfield. I've, I, you know, we were going to podcast last week, but the truth was is that uh, all these moms everywhere gathered together and said I shouldn't podcast from my <laughs> motorcycle, and so I agreed yeah. with them, so we didn't do it. I mean, you could have podcasted while sitting on the side of the road in your motorcycle. That's true. Just didn't. Yeah, it was it was specific that they didn't want you to do it whilst driving. Well, dude, now now that I have uh, gotten about three thousand miles on the motorcycle in the last week, my goodness, yeah, dude, it's like, Ooh. dude, it's so much. I've learned a that your butt gets more sore than you could ever possibly imagine. I that's fair. And and like all these scenes where they have like like Gandalf like doing like a full day of riding on a horse across to like save all the people and <laughs> and like all these people riding horses all the time, like. Seriously, I have no idea because it's the same saddle. It's the same kind of thing that, that's happening, except for those that's bouncing. I, it's like the the end of the universe. I can't even imagine. Well, but he you didn't see the first time he ever did that. That might have been a different. That's good. That's scenario. That's a great point. Well, um, thanks, man. I love it, and I so I I went to Buffalo, and uh, now I am I am uh, back on the road. Well, I'm not on the road right now. I'm hanging out for a few days with my sister and her kids. And, dude, they're the best. I love kids. They're really wonderful and weird and strange and hopeful. Yeah, kids are cool and weird and strange and wonderful. Th- those things are all true. Yeah. So All of those. Yeah, so it's it's just good. I'm loving it, and I'm loving to be back on the show with you. And, oh, and you. And, uh, and we are into the, uh, the uh, 14th, sun- 15th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Yeah, you better believe we are. And our first reading from the 15th Sunday at Ordinary Time is coming from the good old book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 10 through 14. Our res- right at the end there. Yeah, dude, our responsorial psalm is uh, the Psalm 69, uh, which is also a yeah, um, song by the band Ministry, which is oh. really probably, you probably shouldn't listen to that song, but it's really intense. But um, it's uh, Psalm 69, verses 14, 17, 30 to 31, 33 to 34, 36, 37. <laughs> and our responsicle is from 33. 
that's complicated. Yeah, dude. There's a lot of Frankly. there's a lot of numbers and stuff happening. Yeah, lots of numbers. Ooh, I just ooh, I just now had an insight about the psalm. Ooh, wait till you see it. Now, all right. Now, what's funny to me though is I looked on the USCCB uh, website and there's also an or on this one. Yeah, there's another option for Psalm 19. Eight, nine, we're not ten, and eleven. That. We're not going to do that because you just had I mean, an insight that according to your insights. Yes. All right. Our second reading is from the book of Colossians, uh, chapter one, verses fifteen through twenty. And then our gospel is Luke ten twenty-five to thirty-seven. You better believe it is. And then the versicle is from John six sixty-three sixty-eight sixty-three C with sixty-eight C. And by versicle, he means Alleluia. The Alleluia. Yeah, the versicles. Alleluia. So, dude, whenever whenever I see, like, Deuteronomy, I always think, like, Deuteronomy. Like, I just think the word dude. I just think it. That's how I roll. That's, like, what I have in my heart and mind. So, so we're. People have commented on that to us before. About dude? Yeah. How, why dude, Aronomy. What'd they say? They just say dude. Something about how you always say dude, Aronomy. Do I always say dude, Aronomy versus dude, Aronomy? I don't know. Or that that reminds you of them, or them of you, something. There's been references to you and dude, Aronomy, in reference to the podcast. I think there were some comments on iTunes. <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> well, dude, you know, it's just because we are the beavis and butthead of the scriptural academic world. Oh, <laughs> the scriptural. That's. I don't know if I like that identity. <laughs> Someone wrote that in a review on iTunes. And they were like, it's a pretty good podcast, but these guys sound like Beavis and Butthead. Which is really funny because they said that about the Catholic stuff you should know, guys, as well. So we're in good company. We are in good company, which you should listen to that podcast. That's a good podcast. That is a good podcast. Those are good fellas. Hey, and I also saw that the the um their um right of center conservatives are starting a podcast channel called Ricochet. I haven't listened to any of them, but I kind of thought that that was a cool idea that there's going to be some some podcasters that are right of right that are like conservatives and they're going to like actually do stuff, which is very interesting. Like political conservatives? Yeah, yeah, political conservatives, like actual political conservatives. Huh. I know, versus kind All of right. like the screaming raving oh. talking heads that you can get all the time everywhere that's that, like us dude i'm a screaming raving you talking know head. talking head so let's rave dude let's rage let's get this <laughs> like deuteronomy because like if only you would yeah. heed the lord then this podcast would be much better okay so here's what's happening in deuteronomy this is coming at the very end of the book of deuteronomy so there's 34 chapters in deuteronomy so we're at the tail end of the book and the the specific context. So remember Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, man. Here's Deuteronomy gets such a short, short um, stick chain. Short what? Short stick. Short end of the stick. Short, short straw. End of the stick. It draws Thank a short you. straw. Yeah, a short end of the stick was what I was thinking. But yeah, because everybody, I, Deuteronomy is such a fantastic, phenomenal book, and there's so much narrative and story and heart. Um, and people think, oh, it's Deuteronomy. It's just this long list of laws and stuff because the name of the book literally means second law. Nomos means law. But that's not what the book is about. It's, it's about the story of Israel and how they fall and how they come back and these warnings and these blessings and this, this grand narrative of what it means to be a human being and try to follow God. That's, that's at the heart of the book. The word heart, uh, levav in Hebrew, actually shows up more in the book of Hebrew. I'm sorry, in the book of Deuteronomy than any other book of the Bible. Dude, I want to start Which, I want to start a band called Labob, dude. That's a Levav. Sin- oh, Lavav. Well, Labob sounds very kind of 80s chic. 
Well, you can transliterate Hebrew in different ways, so you can make an argument for libab. Okay, so it has it says heart more than any other in in Deuteronomy, in the whole book. Yeah, which tells you something about how we perceive God and what the reality of God is. Hmm. And it's a great microcosm of that because we perceive a book like Deuteronomy, and at least somebody like me, you know, my my instant go to is like, oh, Deuteronomy is boring. It's about a bunch of laws. It's all these things. It's these regulations and da 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 da. But in fact, if you actually read the book, it's all about what God wants is not merely these regulations and these rules. He wants our hearts. And really what this is are marital vows between two couples. You wouldn't call vows in a marriage these, you know, dead, dry law codes or these rules that we have to follow. I mean, it's an expression of love from one party to another. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is supposed to be. It's really, really beautiful. So that's just a a word on why you guys should all go back and read Deuteronomy. But at the very end of the book... So chapters really 29, I think, through 33, 32 or 33, this is sort of the last speech on the part of Moses. Moses is going to die in about chapter 34, and you'll get a little eulogy for Moses. You'll get the story of his death. But right before that, and, and, and it bears noting, whenever you see the death of a major figure in the Bible, taking careful note of the last things that he or she says is really important. So this is the end. And it's Moses at his most passionate, at his most heartfelt. And if you, you take the span of chapters 29 through 33, it is this call to look for Israel to look back to her past, to focus on her present, and to look to God for her future. So this focus of past, present, and future. And really, the whole story of the rest of the Bible, when Israel has her downfalls, it's because she hasn't remembered her past and looked back and reflected on these things and applied it to the present for the sake of her future. So the whole story of salvation is supposed to be this reflection on our past for the sake of our present to lead us into the future. And that's actually the schema of the mass too, right? I mean, you have this, the, 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 uh, um, um, oh, what's that? There's a line in the mass that actually reflects this perfectly. And I had it on the tip of my tongue and I just lost it. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And it kind of encapsulates the whole, what catechesis is supposed to be. So Moses at the end of his life is saying, don't forget what God has done for you. Don't forget what you have seen. Don't forget how you've settled the land. Don't forget your ancestors who crossed the Red Sea and came from Egypt and all these things. Don't forget these things and make a decision right now about how you are going to live. So right before this, we had that, remember that moment on the two mountains where half the people are on Mount Gerizim, half the people are on Mount Ebal, and they're calling back and forth to each other. These are the blessings if we're faithful to what God has asked of us. These are the curses if we're unfaithful. And they end by saying, all of these things we will do. We will choose to follow the Lord this day. So this reflection on where we've come from, this current decision in the, in the moment right now, I will act on this. And then a, a leading on to the future, Moses is like, let that sustain you. Let these things, let this commandment, let it give you life as you go forth and God build, continues to build you up into a people, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where we are right now. And so Moses, as he's kind of going into this big final homily, so to speak, he says, if only you would heed the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. So he's, uh, uh, that's a reference to a book that hasn't taken paper yet, but he's talking about Deuteronomy. When you return to the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. It's funny, when you get all of those warnings and the, the curses and the blessings from the law, Deuteronomy is actually clear. The, the first line of chapter 30, where this comes from, yeah. it actually says, what does it say? It says, when all these blessings and curses have come upon you, 
then get back up and, and do these things. It doesn't say if you fall and if you have these curses or if you receive these blessings. It just is very matter of fact. It's like Israel is going to experience all of this. Yeah. All those curses I mentioned, you're going to experience it because you're going to be unfaithful. All the blessings I mentioned, you're going to experience all that too because in the totality of this, you're going to experience both. And when you experience all these curses and all these blessings, then get back up and realize what we have here, that if you keep the laws and statutes and the commandments, it's actually going to give you life. And then we jump and we get this line. It says, for this command that I enjoin on you today is not too mysterious and remote for you. It's not up in the sky that you should say who will go up to the sky to get it for us and tell, of, tell us of it that we may carry it out. That's actually, I think, a reference to back. At the beginning of, of Exodus, or the middle of Exodus, remember when Moses gubs up on the law on the mountain to get the law? Absolutely. I mean, we've talked about like, this we on don't the podcast go. before, yeah, because yeah. It, it, it's a. I, we'd rather have somebody actually mediate this rather than actually have to endure like the direct nature of being an encounter with God, which yeah. is really and, which is really hard. It's not easy yeah. to actually be able to say that. And Moses says, "No, you can't just put this off on somebody else. This is actually yes. going to be something directly that you can and have to do." Yeah, yeah. Nor is it across the sea that you shall say, "Who will cross the sea to get it for us?" I, I wonder if there's a reference there to the crossing of the Red Sea. That God doesn't just send Moses across the sea to go do something. He says, "No, you're all going for it. It's very near to you. It's in your hearts." But the thing about this. Is that, I mean, if you if you think about what this is actually applying to, and this is something, and Paul, by the way, quotes this in the book of Romans. He talks about this. But here's the difficulty, because if you have this, we have this juxtaposition between the old covenant, the old law, and the new law. And we tend to think, and we're kind of formed by Martin Luther, who, who kind of did a, a disservice in falsely juxtaposing too much the old law and the new law. And how the old law was sin and death and curse and everything bad. And the new law is life and forgiveness and grace and everything else. There's a piece of that. But that also throws God under the bus in a certain sense and says, okay, this law that you gave your people is unlivable. And Paul really does actually make the case in Romans that, look, people suffered under the weight of the old law and we couldn't do it. We need a savior. We need God's grace to actually help us to do this. But we can't forget at the same time that God's not just... God's not messing with Israel. God doesn't give them all these laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy just so that they can watch themselves fail. Right. There is built into those laws the need for a savior. We actually need God for this. Yep. But what Moses is making clear is that, no, these things that God is asking of you, they're actually doable. The problem with Israel is that Israel constantly tried to do them by herself. And what on Moses her is power. saying here, yep. on her own power, and even sometimes not even on her own power, but on the power of other nations. Well, as long as we have a military alliance with Egypt or with Assyria or As long as is, we look like we'll the other safe. nations. Yeah, then we'll be safe. Then we'll be protected. And what he's saying, no, heed the voice of the Lord. When you return to the Lord, then you'll actually be able to be the people you're called to be. It's really not about all of the law code in the book of Deuteronomy. It's about turning to the Lord first and allowing him to give you the power and the grace to do these things that you're being asked of because they're not too far off. They're not mysterious and remote. They're not up in the sky. They're not across the sea. They're actually accessible to you. Yes. But you can't do them if you're left to your own power alone. Right. And that's the problem with the Old Testament. They left themselves to their own power alone. We needed Jesus to come and slap us in the face essentially and say, no, I will give you the power, the explicit grace to go and do these things that you never thought you could, you could do. But is it, po I mean, it raises this big question in my mind. I've been reflecting on this this morning. Was it possible for Israel to do these things that God asked? Well, it has to have been. Otherwise, God is just sort of 
throwing out arbitrary, meaningless laws. I mean, we look at the Old Testament law, and even Jesus says, look, the yoke that you've been given is too hard for even you to bear. But the yoke that he's talking about is all these extra laws that the rabbis and that the Pharisees put on top of God's law. God's law is reasonable. God's law is livable. God's law... I mean, this is... This is how the church is looked at today, and I read way too many Catholic blogs, and I read way too many comments on Facebook, and I read way too many things that say, look, the church, I, I just read something that Archbishop Chaput said about, you know, uh, couples, you know, needing to live chastity, you know, and, and if they're, yeah, if, a, if a couple is waiting to be married or unmarried or something, they actually have to live chaste lives, and I was reading, it was this whole article that he put out. But all the comments were like, yeah, right. What if, you know, this dumb old man, you honestly think people can do that? Nobody's going to listen to you. What a ridiculous law. You're asking people not to not to do these things with each other. And that's just, that's absurd. How can you ask a person not to do that? And you don't know. You're living in the past. And you're living in this dream world if you think people cannot contracept and not sleep together and not do all these things. Hold on, hold on. Tell me this for a second. You read comments on <laughs> something that Archbishop Chaput wrote? I think that, yeah. that's, I think that that's the because like, number one rule on the internet is like don't read the comments i know i know the rule but i never follow it because <laughs> i'm it's like wanting to look at a car wreck as you're passing by like i have to see what the masses have said <laughs> yeah it's, it's so funny worst. i do a lot of marriage preparation i mean i i've prepared more than 150 couples around and uh and I'll tell you, every couple who is not living chastely but then comes back from that and actually mm. starts living chastity in their engagement are like, this is the single greatest gift that we gave ourselves in our married life as we were That's living. Awesome. And so it's like one of those things where you can have all those comments. But it, what you're saying is that... It's doable. Yes. This is yeah. actually something that is possible. Even though it's an ideal and even though it's like a lot, you you can actually still absolutely accomplish and live out of these goals. They're actually simpler right. than you would imagine. Right. And even when, and again, with Israel here in Deuteronomy 30, even when you fall, you can actually get back up. Yes. That's a possibility. You can ask God to pick you back up and you can start again. Well, And I, that's how the church has always seen this. I think it's funny. There's like a spirit around the law that says... If we live the law perfectly, then the Messiah mm. will come back. Actually, the, right. the result of the mes- That's Messiah. That's what the Pharisees thought. Exactly. The result of living it perfectly is salvation. Not. Well, but you can you can see their point, though, because God is explicit in the prophets that the reason that um, you've fallen, lost your nation, is because you were unfaithful to the law. You broke the law, and so you lost all these things. So the reasonable response is, okay, well, if we're perfectly faithful, maybe we can get it back. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's logic to it. It's it's not quite it's it's missing something, but it's logical. And you can see it. I mean, the Pharisees get a bad rap, and I mean, they, these are people who want to be holy, who are desperate, who are like, we don't know what else to do. Yeah, which and so they become legalistic. Which is a perfect lead into the psalm: "Turn to the Lord in your need, and you will live." Yes. Yeah. Here's the here's the thing that's interesting about the psalm, though: "Turn to the nor- to the Lord in your need, and you will live." The reason that Psalm 69 always sticks out for me is not because of this part of Psalm 69, but it's because of the first kind of half of Psalm 69, which is really, really dark. And it's that Very Psalm, dark. save me, O God, for the waters have reached my neck. My feet lost all their footholds. I'm, I'm totally drowning. Yeah. And then it ends in hope, but it starts with such utter dis- seeming despair. I had a friend who struggled deeply with depression and, um, he would keep a, a, a bullet, like literally a, an old bullet in his pocket 
that is not usable, but it had a little, uh, he had a piece of duct tape around it and it said Psalm 69 because he remembered, uh, some, <laughs> some guy on a street corner in, on Pearl street here in Boulder was singing Psalm 69 about his, the sorrows in his life. But he said Psalm 69 was his bullet to bite on. He's like, Lord, just give me a bullet to bite on. And it was this idea that, okay, I feel totally desolate, but I have this Psalm that even if I don't believe in the Psalms, I believe that there was someone who experienced this before me. And that's enough. And I can hold on to that. Wow. Because someone has felt my desolation. And my friend resonated with that. And so he kept this in his pocket and it, it kind of pulled him through. But it's a very desolate psalm. And it's interesting to me because right before what Moses said here in the first reading, he talked at length about all of the curses and the desolations that will come upon Israel mm. because of what they've done. And if you stop reading Deuteronomy around chapter 28, yeah. you're going to be very, very depressed. Uh, and if you don't keep reading and, and Moses is, but in chapter 30, but this is doable and you can get back up and God will rebuild you. Yeah. If you stop reading Psalm 69 at, I don't know, like verse 13 or so, and you just stop there, you're going to miss what the psalmist is trying to say. Yes, it's desolate. Yes, it's dark. Yes, I can't find my foothold. But then I turned to the Lord and I found it. Right. And I found that bullet to bite on. It was enough. And I was able to be pulled back up. But this is the story of Israel. This is the story of Deuteronomy. It's encapsulated. This is the human experience encapsulated in this one little psalm. It hurts. It's painful. But we're actually not meant to suffer by ourselves. We're not meant to be in desolation, God. It's, it's the same idea that when, when Jesus prays Psalm 22 on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you just leave it there, you're going to miss the point of what Jesus is saying. If you finish the Psalm, he says, but I realize God didn't forsake me and he actually lifted me up and he saved me and he glorified me because there's always the end to the story. If we stop our faith on Good Friday, we're never going to realize what Christianity is. Right. And too many Christians, I think, stop on Good Friday. Right. And we don't get to Easter Sunday or simultaneously. Sometimes we focus too much on Easter Sunday and we forget that there was a good Friday to get us there. Right. You actually need both. We need that experience to understand what this whole thing is. And then the faith becomes human. Then it becomes this thing. I mean, we don't just, you know, as John Paul II said, we're the Alleluia people and, and or we're the Easter people and Alleluia is our song. That's true. But we're the Alleluia people because we went through good Friday. And we can't forget those things. And I remember before I came back to my Catholic faith, I thought Christianity was insane because it just focused on how great everything it is. And if you just love Jesus, you're going to be happy and there's going to be all this joy and everything's going to be super. And that wasn't my experience. Right. And so to realize that Catholicism actually means to bring together, the corpus is still on the cross because we can't forget how we got here. And we can't forget that when we feel that pain, which we inevitably will, it's not meaningless. And there still is hope. And that experience recycles itself every single day. Right. Psalm 69 is recycled every day in our lives. We feel the despair. We feel the desolation. But there's always hope. Right. And then we're going to feel it again. And then we're going to need to get picked back up again. And then we're going to fall again and need to get picked back up. And But there's something that's very human about a faith that actually acknowledges that. Right. That doesn't just say, if you just forget about everything, I'll be super. But no, we actually feel the experience you're having, and that's okay. And we'll walk through it. Right. There's something just profoundly human about that. And so, and I don't know another so faith important. that does that. And I don't know another faith that, a faith that actually explicitly recognizes that. Right. And just dives headlong into it and says, let's go for it. I don't either. I've... And that's where we are not just an opiate. This is not what we live 
It's like yeah. we will we will have life, but there is real there's real cost in the midst of it, and and like yeah. unless you pick up your cross daily and follow after me, you're not my disciple. Which means that like we have to be open to the suffering and to say yes, I know that God is imminent. He is with me, and I can go through this, and I can go through this with God. And if yes. I don't, then yeesh. which is cool yeesh. because in in Colossians, yeah. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Like that's actually the, that's an essential component to this. It's like we, we need tangibility and reality. And I think that that's part of what the, what, what, um, what the sufferings even in Deuteronomy are, are this intangibility. I mean, there was some tangibility. I mean, there was some signs and some sign power, but who is God? What does the personhood of God look like? And I think that that's well, actually really beautiful because it's saying like the personhood of God is this reality that for, pours forth all of creation, that we live in something that is, is actually an accessible point so that we can enter into the heart of God and understand who God is and understand what's trying to be communicated about the true nature of who the Lord is. So it's like, yeah. it's like the origin of all things is this personhood of God and that the personhood of God is going to surround us and lift us up be, so that imminence and transcendence can be so intimately linked. Yeah, you mentioned the tangibility aspect of this. I mean, that's I, I don't know if I'm off the mark here or not, but you know, again in Exodus and Deuteronomy and this whole narrative, God wanted to make himself incarnate in a certain sense, not bodily like Jesus. But you know, in the beginning of Exodus or in the middle of Exodus, when the laws are being given from Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. we're told in Exodus that the people are hearing it in the second person singular in their ears. Like you Father Peter Musset shall love the Lord your God. Right. <laughs> you, Scott Powell, should not steal. And the people freaked out because it was too much tangibility. It was too much of the incarnation. And that's when they sent Moses. They're like, no, you get it. But the idea that God's not going to force himself on us. He's not go- he wants to make himself accessible and apparent and visible. But he won't force that because that's not, that's not who God is. Right. And you almost get this. I get this image of... Okay, I tried to make myself incarnate to you guys, and you didn't want it. So I backed off, and that's fine. And now in Jesus, I'm coming back again. And I'm kind of knocking on the door and like, let's try this again. I just imagine, I, I, I think of, and I don't know if this analogy breaks down, but you know, I think of as a parent, I think of my strong-willed little daughter who's just a little firecracker sometimes, you know, and who will flip out and I'll try to, you know, even when you're trying to do something good and she doesn't understand or she wants it another way, we do this all the time. You want to give someone something good. Right. Somebody wants something good. You want to give them something better, but they're stuck on the good instead of seeing the better thing that you want to give them. And Lily so often will just, she'll just flip out and just get mad. And sometimes you just got to let Lily get mad and go to her room for a while and chill out. Instead <laughs> of forcing. And yes. that's what God is doing in Deuteronomy. He's like, fine, I'm just going to let you guys chill out for a while. And eventually you're going to feel this. And eventually the desire for me will come back. And then he right. knocks on the door and I will knock on Lily's door and I'll be like, can we try again? Can we, right. you know, and, and you know, yep. if you give it enough time and sometimes she's still mad and sometimes we as God's people are still mad, but God will just keep knocking on the door, but he's not going to break the door down and come and make us come and be loved by him. He will wait until we're ready. And I love that when Jesus comes, it's not just God is coming back to the door again. It's that he's, he's come back in this way that had never been imagined before. And all right, now you're ready for the better, or I want to offer you the better. And again, we reject it when we nailed him to a cross. Mm. And so he comes back again. He knocks on the door. He's knocking on the door of our heart. He's going to come back a second time. 
he never gives up. Yeah, I don't know. This analogy no. is breaking down a little bit, but but it was incarnate in the old. I mean, this is the thing we can't forget that God is not doing something entirely new. He wanted to be accessible. He wanted to have a certain kind of incarnate nature with us, but we rejected it. We didn't want it. So what does he do? He backs off, gives us space, and then he tries again. Especially when we realize we can't actually do this by ourselves. Assyria is not going to save us. So we need you. Yeah. yeah I don't and know. that's that's why he's the head of the body of the church. That's yeah, like, yeah. this is the thing is, it's like, we do have to actually reference God. We can't just do this on our own. That's like, surrender to God and he will do all things for you. Yep. Which is which is a great lead-in to Luke. Uh because yes. I mean you have this great scene where you see this guy who is this guy is good I mean he's a scholar of the law he gets it right he's totally like what do I have to do and then you have answered correctly do this and you will live and then he then he bonks he wants to justify himself and who is yeah. my neighbor Jesus replied a man and then he gives us the good Samaritan which is so interesting because isn't that our temptation? I mean, Jansenism, the, the whole thing of saying, like, I am my own savior is going to be a constant temptation for humanity because we feel our own power. We feel our own strength. We feel all this stuff inside of us that's good. And yet it's not sufficient. And like if we have to we have to deal with shame. And I, I, I like Brené Brown's definition of shame, saying that I'm not enough. And, and like like that experience within our lives, we want to give it a, we don't want to ever actually have that. We want, don't want to ever say, I'm not enough to do this. Like, I yeah. hate that experience. I want to be yeah. Jason Bourne. I want to be this thing that if I only realized my true identity, that I was like the master of all things, that I was the Messiah. But the truth is, is that when you actually have to go and reference people outside of yourself and to offer and to open yourselves in those ways, like it's really, really helpful. It's wonderful. And, but, but it is humbling and, and we can't just justify ourselves. That's why I think that this, this parable is so radically important and retells the story of Israel. What do you, what do you think it means though? And so, so what father Peter's saying, this guy comes and he's like, okay, what must I do? Don't turn, turn to life. And Jesus says, what's the law? And he, he gives the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your, your being, your strength, and your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. But then he wants to justify. What, what do you think it means? What does he want to justify? Because this is, it's number one, this is actually a fairly prominent question in even modern day Judaism, in reflecting on the Torah and reflecting on the Tanakh. And Jews and rabbis debate this. Who is my neighbor? And there's varied opinions. Now, I actually appreciate it because I think Christians do the same thing, but we don't admit that we do. And we all the time want to limit who our neighbor is. We don't necessarily give it as much, you know, vocalness, but it, but it, you, you can even do Google searches and, and search this online and search, you know, rabbinic forums online and that'll have be having this discussion. Who is my neighbor? And some people will be like, well, you know, it, the, uh, Semitic people are our neighbors or, you know, but and very strict lines of these are the people who are not our neighbors. This is not contained in this umbrella because it's a pretty broad term. What what does it mean to be a neighbor? And I think as Christians, come on, we don't admit how much we struggle with that question. Won't you be my neighbor? My neighbor. No, I know <laughs> that we. I know that we don't. I mean. But so I, I guess I'm this trying is, to well, say I, I want to I, I want to I want to answer this for a second though like well I don't want to answer I just want to give this guy's question the credit it deserves I don't want to write off his question because it's a question that 
a lot of people in his time were asking. Yes, but it's also Luke. Luke, uh, he he identifies and he actually frames the question for us in order to justify yes. himself. He's he's actually looking and saying like, okay, here's a scholar. This is the big question: Who's my neighbor? Just like what you're framing right there. You're saying like, no. okay, yeah, this is a really important question to this day. Who is my neighbor? This doesn't actually apply. Yeah. Um, and I've been listening to Les Mis uh, on audiobook as I've been on on the motorcycle. So I'm I'm listening to Jean Valjean and like um, uh, and like I'm I'm like listening to all this stuff. I, and and here is somebody who's saying like, no, I'm willing to accept that everybody is my neighbor. That like like and and it's so moving when you actually encounter somebody who says, I'm not going to shun and I'm not going to. Um, push away from my life and say no like to to the fact that I, there is actually some sort of true human reality that allows me to be able to open my heart to everybody that I encounter yeah not 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 an, an intimate opening of yeah, heart yeah, yeah. but no, that, of course but to like accept and to say like no I'm I'm not going to make distinctions I'm going to actually you know no Jew or Greek or Scythian slave or free like right who are they? I mean, like, what, what what does it mean to be a neighbor to somebody? It just means, like, here's... Because like, the parable, so then we get into the parable. Somebody's robbed on the side of the road, and a bunch of people walked by. We have, um, you know, a priest walks by, a Levite walks by, and a Samaritan walks by. The Samaritan is the one who actually stops and takes care of, of this person who is, like, jacked up on the side of the road. Do you notice, though, that Jesus doesn't actually answer the question? That's, I think, what's most striking about this. He never gives an answer. He doesn't say, oh, the Samaritan is your neighbor. He says, yeah, he says, which of these three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the robber's victim? Oh, he does say it. I guess he does at the end. Well, yeah, he says, who, who was neighbor to the robber's victim? Mm. Yeah, he does say that, doesn't he? The one who treated him with mercy. Yeah. But here, okay, okay, we got to unpack this a little bit. Because what, what Jesus is saying is far deeper, I think, than what we think he's saying. I think. So, and I, I've, I've, I was thinking about this this morning and I'll see if this sticks or not. Cause there's, I mean, you know, it's been said and, and scholars have said that this, this parable, this the good Samaritan, this is the embodiment of Jesus's concept of mercy. It's also sort of the moment in the scriptures where Jesus shows mercy to trump everything else. It is the kind of preeminent thing that he's asking of us. But here's the thing, but here, here's what the mercy is. Cause the mercy is not just, it's not just showing compassion, it's, just, it's not just being kind. It's not just helping out people when they need to be helped. It's actually far, it's so different than that because, again, this is a scholar of the law, so he gets it. He knows what's going on. You got a Levite, you got a priest. What the reality is, I mean, why did the priest and the Levite avoid helping this guy? Yeah, I mean, you have, uh, the priest probably doesn't want to have ritual uncleanness because of the touching of blood. The Levite yeah. probably the same thing. Same deal. But but it's not, but, but you see what you just said. And this is where I want to give this the full weight I think it deserves. It's not just the Levite and the priest don't want to, you know, have this kind of messiness or this ritual uncleanness. I mean, it's a command in, in Numbers chapter 11, I think it is, that you cannot do this. You don't touch a dead body. You don't touch blood. You don't interact with these things because if you do, you are cut off from the community. So... There's got to, I, I I like to hope at least that when these guys are passing by this Samar or the passing by this guy who's been robbed, it's not just a simple oh, I'm just turning my head the other way, but that there's a legitimate struggle. 
And, and I mean legitimate struggle because they're like, well, there's a guy that needs help. But in God's law, I'm not allowed to touch him. It's not just, I don't think there's just this simple like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. That's messy and that's kind of annoying to me. It's, I know I probably should help, but God's law says I can't. What do I do? Like, there's a real struggle. There's a real tension there. At least there should be. Now, again, maybe these two guys, maybe they're just schmoes. And maybe they just don't care and, and just want to get on with their business. But there is also the real issue that the law commands that we cannot do this. Or else we are cut off from the community. We are ritually unclean. Which doesn't mean morally unclean. It means you are cast off. You are cut off the branch of Israel. And you've got to, you've got to think these guys are like, what do I do? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But here's the kicker, and this is what I've never quite seen before. If the Levite or the priest were to have gone down and dealt and help, dealt with and helped this guy, what happens? They take upon themselves the curse of Israel. They take upon themselves the curse of being cut off. The curse of, yeah, the, the, the curse of the punishment of Israel. That what it means to be a neighbor, what Jesus is saying, is willing to take upon yourself the curse of another, hmm. the willing to take upon yourself the punishment and the willingness to be cut off. Why is that make which on its own doesn't make any sense on its own sounds completely illogical unless right. you actually realize what Jesus did. Right. And his whole act on the cross was taking on the curse of Israel, hmm. which he didn't deserve, which he didn't earn, but he takes it on on behalf of. And what Jesus is saying, really, this is a commentary on the law. He's saying, you're misunderstanding the law because the law is not just saying, this is what you're allowed to do. This is what you're not allowed to do. What you're doing in helping the Samaritan, are you willing to take upon yourself the burden of another? Right. Are you willing to take upon yourself the burden of something that you did not deserve? Because Christ models the, the perfection of neighborliness, as nerdy as that sounds. That's what he's saying. And what it means to be neighborly is not just show compassion, not just be kind, not just say hello to the people around you, but to be willing to take on the real pain, the real suffering, the real curse of something that you did not deserve. Which is why when we look at the Good Samaritan, Jesus Christ is actually the model of who the Good Samaritan is way before we ever even get a, yes. a, an opportunity to say oh, it's, it's going to be something external in, in something else. No, here is one who's willing and who's going to provide for everything that's needed. Yes. And and that we can actually yeah. see that the Good Samaritan is Christ and that Jesus is saying, I am willing to be neighbor to you. Yeah. The other irony in this is that, you know, the Samaritans, what are the Samaritans? The Samaritans were the remnant of the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes who broke off from Israel, who worshipped their own gods, who founded their own temple, who did all this terrible stuff. They were wiped out by Assyria. They intermarried. And the remnant who's left over still in the north are the Samaritans because Samaria was the capital of that, of that kingdom. So, I mean, they were pretty hated because they were family members who walked away, who hurt each other, who, I mean, it was pretty bad. They were the outsiders, and so what Jesus is saying is these Jewish people, these people of God are actually being shown up by outsiders right. who actually get it, which is quite frankly, a lot of the story of the New Testament. The people of God will actually be shown up by the Gentiles who get it. And a lot of Gentiles will end up leading Jewish people into the faith. And Paul's whole mission will be going to the outsiders who get it, even when God's, God's own people don't get it. 
So it, it's also a microcosm of the rest of the story of the church. Hmm. And not that these Levite and the, the priest are, are without hope. I mean, the idea is that they can realize they can be brought in as well. They can be bought in. But the idea is there's an outsider who's actually going to do it, who's going to get it, even when you guys don't get it. A lot of the outsiders get what Jesus did before the people of God do. I mean, even look at the cross. While the apostles themselves have all run away, a Roman centurion, the consummate outsider, declares, surely this was the Son of God. He's telling the story of you you are so short-sighted in your concept of what it means to be a neighbor. Not only are the people who you least expect and probably most despise going to get this before you do, but they're going to be the ones who are willing to give themselves to me in, in the image of me and the icon, like Paul says in Colossians, the icon of the invincible God. They will be little icons and images themselves of me sometimes before us. And it's, it's when we see, you know, this is what Pope Francis is, I think, trying to remind us of. Sometimes we actually see people outside the church doing things that are holier than those of us in the church are doing. Right. And we don't recognize the ways of God actually moving people outside of ourselves. Right. And we are blind to God's mercy at work in the lives of people in the world and in the culture. And we don't want to see that because we don't want to think that God is going to work his mercies in people outside of our community. Yep. Because that's messy and that's problematic and that's difficult and awkward and stuff that we just don't always want to deal with. But that's precisely the story. And that's precisely how they will see our love is to be yeah. neighborly and to be merciful and to pour out the mercy and the love of God that we have experienced in communities that are just that are far. So it's like it's yeah. just how we're supposed to do it. And and so that's like, won't you be my neighbor? It's like, yeah, you be my neighbor. Let, let's pour it out. Let's be merciful. Let's love and not worry about being touched and being experienced as unclean or yeah. has feeling like oh no if i do this if i reach out to these people if i pour myself out in this way i'm going to be an untouchable within the community itself no man it's like no go out bring the message of the lord to the nations their people are starving for the transcendence that jesus christ has to offer and in that are you willing to be an untouchable within the community for the sake of that right for the sake of the other to take that on yeah because that is a really important question are you willing to take that on because that's a real possibility take on me take on me yeah well there you go dude it's awesome we love you guys thanks for listening to the podcast and um uh, pray for me as i ride my motorcycle home so that uh, i don't hit any deer and no. um or cattle. Or ca cattle. Cattle would be really tough because that thing's not going to move and they're just going to look at it and it's going to go, move, move. Yeah, that'd be tough. Don't hit any cattle. Don't hit any deer. Don't hit any meerkats. Any of them. No meerkats. Done. All right. We'll be back next week with Father Peter live and in person. And we'll see you then. Okay. God bless you. Bye. Bye-bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.